All right, so have you ever wondered how venture capital funds make money and what it takes to start one? Hi, I'm Jason Andrew, chartered accountant, business owner, and financial voyeurist, and this is Stark Naked Numbers. It's the podcast that strips down the numbers of business, investing, and wealth creation to help you become a better entrepreneur, investor, and ultimately build your net worth. This is our very first episode, so if you're listening, you've clearly got the spirit of a VC. Uh, And that's why this week's show is all about VCs, how they work, how they actually make money, and whether or not just anyone can become one. So in this very first episode, I'm joined by someone near and dear to my heart and very important to my net worth. Rowan Grant from Upper Capital is a recovering accountant turned entrepreneur of VC, and he's also my business partner. Join us to find out how VCs make money, what they actually do on a daily basis, and uh, why I think Nick Crocker is like the Keanu Reeves of Australian startups. It's a good time. Uh, so basically, my personal net worth is heavily dependent on Rowan making smart bets, <laughs> uh, not yellowing on uh, meme stocks or NFTs. Rowan, <laughs> what's up? <laughs> hey, how you going? Good to be here. Yeah, likewise. So, I guess we've known each other for like a bit part of a decade, right? Um, but to be honest, yeah, there are a lot yeah. of things that I don't know about you, uh, including what you actually do day to day. I know that, I know that sound, might sound a bit weird, uh, you know, to the folks listening, given that we're business partners, you know, I'm, I'm coming to your wedding in a few months. Like, like to shine a light on this, like we work fully remotely. We talk probably every other day, like on the phone, maybe once yeah, a day, twice a day. Every, day, every second day. Yeah, every second day. But it's usually like around businesses, about business decisions, right? It's more like high-level stuff, um, you know, board meetings, updates on strategic things or projects we're working on, but less, not really stuff in the weeds. Like, it's not as if I'm like your manager or you're my manager where we're like sharing our to-do lists and getting our task list <laughs> collectively. So, yeah, just first question, like, as a VC, what do you actually do? It's a good question. Yeah, so we, I guess we met over doing debits and credits and that's that's changed a bit i guess the day-to-day so we're, we're a pretty small outfit so i guess the unhelpful answer is <laughs> do everything but but i usually bucket it into um like, like six um buckets so effectively we're a funds management business right and, and the functions of a funds management business is capital raising and investor relations deal flow so bringing in investment opportunities filtering through those opportunities and seeing which ones align with our mandate Deal execution. So once we find something a fit with our mandate that we want to sort of dig in deeper and proceed with going through the deal process, portfolio management. So once something becomes an investment, um, managing that investment through to some sort of liquidity event, hopefully. Um, and then fund operation or fund ops. So, um, as a fund management business, we have compliance, reporting, accounting, like all, all the fun stuff that is very important. And then like a broad business development bucket. So like a lot of general networking, which could be with a very specific purpose, like trying to help a portfolio company hire a lead developer or um, just meeting somebody in a, in a, you know, with a technical skill set that we're interested in, or just, you know, when someone says, Hey, you should meet this person for coffee. And that's, that's a good chunk of it. So they're the six buckets of which myself and Dan do all of them. Um, Dan Winter. And in a bigger firm, you would segment that out and, and sort of have senior partners doing the cap raising and maybe deal decisions and biz dev. And then like you'd have fund accountants. But uh, at the moment, it's all on us. 
That's interesting. So you're basically running a business of investing, right? So I mean, I mean, this is a really interesting idea. I mean, an old mentor mentioned to me that a lot of like PE funds or VC funds uh, are in the business of investing rather than being investors themselves. And I think there's a, a key difference where you're wearing multiple hats every day, like those six categories. But like, where do you see? How do you see yourself? Are you uh, a business owner of an investment fund, or do you see yourself as an investor? That's a really good question because we've been tick-tacking on this philosophically for the last couple of years where you're you're exactly right. A funds management business um, has a a very specific business model and you have clients who are your colloquially, your LPs. You charge them fees and your goal is to deliver returns and you get paid if if that's your fee. So, there's a certain set of incentives there. Gotcha. So, when you say LP, what's an LP? Is that like your investors? Yeah. So, limited partner, yeah, your investors. So, Typically, um, a fund, and this is not every fund, but a fund is like a limited partnership and you have the limited partners of the investors, same as like the shareholders in a company. And um, you have the general partner who sort of manages the fund and makes the investment decisions and takes the fees. So, there's a certain set of incentives with, with a funds management business and that is usually to grow your funds under management, right? Because that's what you take your fees on. So, naturally, to increase revenue, um, if that's why you're thinking about it like a business, then you want more more funds under management. So, that could be through starting new funds or which is usually the case, like a new vintage. So, first fund, second fund, third fund and raising more capital each time, which you charge and we'll get into, I guess we'll talk about fees later. But you you take a management fee and ultimately a performance fee or carried interest and your incentive there is to do to do that, to grow that base as opposed, not always, but as opposed to say pure investment performance. And and you can imagine that say a $50 million fund to a $3 billion fund, it's a very different set of activities to, to deliver returns on that quantum of money. So yeah, being in the business of funds management, I guess was, was something we didn't really, when we first started, we sort of fell into it and didn't like we liked the, the activity, the craft of investing, right? And then you realize, oh, there's this whole business back end to it. And ultimately, we wanted to decide like recently, we're like, well, what do we want to do? Build like a big funds management business or stick to the craft or passion of investing and making investment decisions. And um, yeah, it was almost, I wouldn't say an existential question, but like a really big philosophical one because they're, they're almost, I wouldn't say they're, they're, they sort of veer apart because if you see yourself as like an owner and leader of a funds management business, what you do day to day as the business grows is probably less and less investing, right? It's more investor relations, good chunk of compliance, which you know you would have a team for, but still you, you, you've got to be reviewing a lot of those numbers and docs and signing them. So, I, I looked at that and thought it was much a similar insight actually as to like when we were accountants and like you would see the senior partner of the firm <laughs> and you would see what they do all day and you're like... Do I want to do that? Um, and they, they make yeah. good money. And uh, there was a the penny dropped for me one day when I was like, oh, I could do okay um, in accounting and, and probably stick it out and become partner. And then I looked at the partners and I was like, mm, lovely guys, uh, very wealthy, but like I don't I don't want to do that all day. <laughs> and that that's so true. I was had the same moment with funds management where I was like, well, I like the investing, like talking to companies, doing analysis, like writing the memo paper, making decisions. Like that's, it's intellectually challenging and fun. But I thought, 
do I want to be doing road shows, raising capital? Uh, that's that's fun too, but like all the time, no. Like I really love the investing side of things. Yeah, that's fascinating. So, like you picked venture, like venture capital. Uh, you know, I guess the the type is from what I understand, and we'll, we'll get, dig into this a bit more. But you're basically raising money from outside from investors, your LPs, and then you're finding great high growth quality companies to invest that that money into. Um, but the check sizes you know, often in hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars, right? So, if you compared like venture capital to like if you're looking pure at the art of investing as opposed to running a funds management business, you could have started investing on in public markets, right? Like you could have gone to, to bought shares on the ASX or, or the NASDAQ or whatever and and put rather than having to raise money, you, everyone's got maybe you know, a couple of thousand bucks hanging around in cash. Like you could start the craft of investing just by buying shares in a public company, like why did you choose VC specifically, which is quite a niche area, area of the market? It sounds really difficult and dealing with the liquid companies and, and requires you to raise millions of dollars from, from investors. Like, did you try to start in public markets and then move to private or were you like, uh, public markets is too hard? Like, where'd you start? No, I never tried my hand at yeah, public markets. I mean, personally, I did and just like my track record personally is terrible. Like I've just made <laughs> terrible bets. I think the only one I've made that was good was zero. <laughs> um, but like that made up for all my other like shit, shit socks. Which is basically our venture, venture capital, right? Like one, one good company, one quality company just makes up for the loss of all the others, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The power law. Yeah. We, yeah. We should talk about that later too. Um, so no, I didn't try my hand. What I did do was, was, leave accounting and, and start a startup um, and that was my exposure to that world and it was over the course of years building a network in that space that I, I got the opportunity to work for a family office after one of the last startups failed um, I was getting mentored by the chief investment officer of um, Steve Baxter's family office at the time it was a pretty new family office heavy venture focused and they were looking for like a, an analyst effectively they gave me a call and said, hey, you know, startups and accounting, we don't know too many people that know both those sort of worlds. Do you want to come and try your hand at this? And I thought, sort of, yeah, this sounds amazing. I- I'd always had a like a passion to get into investing, whatever that means, but I, I didn't know how I was going to do it. Like you know, we-, we had an accounting degree, not finance degree. Um, I was working in accounting, not sort of corporate finance or investment banking or anything. So I wasn't really sure how I was ever going to make that leap. I, I probably hoped that I would have a successful business outcome and then just invest off personal balance sheet, right? But again, yeah, yeah. How or when that was going to happen was just the, the question mark. You know, you know that um that meme where it's like something plus question mark equals profit. Like it was just there was a big yeah. question mark there where I was like, I, I don't know how I'm going to get to that to that yeah. profit. Yeah. Um. So yeah, started there and just absolutely loved it from the first minute. It was just you know Steve was great to work for. He if you're in his team, he trusts you a lot. There was a lot of latitude. Like instantly, was just traveling, meeting a ton of companies, meeting the portfolio, getting introduced to his network, and ultimately doing a lot of investments. I think across Shark Tank in the tech portfolio, like there was something like twenty to twenty five investments done in in that two or three years, and, and a lot of interesting situations of IPOs and. Turn, like basically turnarounds and recaps and a lot of cool stuff in private markets. So, yeah, I sort of fell into private markets and I guess specifically venture by accident, although it's where I wanted to be. But I, I, I had no linear path to get there. It was, it was a bit of um, serendipity and luck. And then since then, I just I, – I 
yeah, have stayed there and not 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 turned my eye to public markets. And, and I think that's probably a good thing. So I don't think I'd be very good at it. There's, there's something to do with the illiquidity of private markets forces you to be patient. Yeah. I think when I've done poorly in public markets off my own money, it's selling, buying and selling at the wrong time and just not understanding the market psychology um, and going, oh, this is like fundamentally a good business. And then buying some of that business through my Comsec and then like panicking when it crashes, despite it still being probably a fundamentally good business. And that's something you can't really do in private markets. Like you own it and it's super illiquid and you're along for the ride. Yeah, definitely. That that's so true. Like with the whole public market thing, is like when you can see your ticker going up and down, like you know, my five percent increase one day drops ten percent the next day. You're literally, um, yeah, seeing the stock price move every day. And I think that if you don't truly, I guess, appreciate the fundamentals, I think Warren Buffett said that when he doesn't buy stocks, he buys businesses, right? When when he invests, so like I think that's a very challenging thing to grasp if you're new to investing or even um, not sure about how yeah how, how things are valued or how businesses or equities are valued and looking at the um, yeah look at the share price jump up and down it's like oh crap it's it's up today it's down tomorrow I should sell or I'm up I'll, I'll take my gains while I can uh, but hard to do obviously very hard to do in a liquid market <laughs> because you're just waiting for someone to sell their stake or waiting for the company to have um, sort of some sort of exit before you get paid all right, so uh, you mentioned like kind of the fee structure of venture funds. I'm I'm really interested to understand, Troy, like how do venture funds actually make money? Yeah, so I guess yeah, so venture funds are a type of fund manager, and in the funds management business, you make money by charging your clients or your investors fees. Typically, in like alternative investments, so the world of hedge funds, private equity, VC, real estate, and even real estate funds, you charge a, a management fee and a performance fee or, or otherwise called carried interest. So, unpacking those a bit. So, management fee is basically typically a fixed percentage of your funds under management or assets under management, right? And it's usually 2%, but across a range of like one to three. And you get this fee, you charge it sort of quarterly. It's 2% a year of your funds under management, charge it quarterly. And you get this no matter your performance, right? It's to keep the lights on, pay your team, pay your rent, like as in your, your business fee expenses, travel, um, business development, stuff like that, right? And then this effectively has to be paid back before you get your carry. So if you don't perform, you keep the 2%. But if you do perform and you get into carry territory, which we'll get to in a second, essentially got to like pay that management feedback before you get your carried interest. So, right. you could really think of the management fee as like a, a loan against your carry if you get in carry, carry territory. The thing is, like what we were talking about before about like funds management businesses growing AUM, if you, you can get to a certain size where that 2% a year is like a lot of money, way more money than you need to run the business. I guess funds management, that's why they say it's pretty scalable. You can grow your funds under management without necessarily growing your headcount in like a linear fashion, right? So, you can, you know, I know people in the hedge fund world who run a lot of money with like two people. Like how much? How much money? Um, oh, like there's a guy I know runs about 500 mil by himself. So, he runs $500 million funds with, with just one guy? Yeah. Wow. And that's in public markets. And so, he doesn't have like 
a lot of uh, fixed OPEX. <laughs> like his fixed costs are pretty minimal, right? Like he would have compliance, annual accounting, um, some reporting stuff. And, but yeah, it's just him. So that manager fee, basically straight to him. Um, now, for a hedge fund, sometimes that, that fee is probably not 2%. It might be a bit lower, but you can see it's a scalable business. So on the carry side of things, the or the performance fee, that is a percentage of the returns you make for your investors. Usually, particularly in the venture world, that's about 20%. So 20% of the profit you make for your investors goes to you as the fund manager. But that can range as low as 10% and as high as 30. Um, and, and that's once you've paid or you've returned the paid in capital. So the, the money the investors put in has to be given back to them plus the management fees and maybe a hurdle rate. So you might have like an 8% hurdle rate um, before your, your performance fee kicks in. And then you get 20% of the profit after that. So you can see like these are both, both the management fee and the carry their percentages. So the way, you know, given their percentages, the more AUM you have. And the bigger your returns, these figures can be massive. That's amazing. So, I, I guess you're incentivized then to raise more AUM and cut bigger checks into bigger companies, right? Because if, if you're if you're self-interested, uh, if if you're a fund manager with high degree of self-interest, who wants to maximize your your net worth, like you're naturally incentivized to raise a bucket load of cash and deploy it into you know startups that may not actually be fantastic investments overall, but so long as they return a decent return above your hurdle rate because you're talking dollars, not percentages. Like it's like, you know, would you rather 20% of a watermelon or 100% of an apple, right? Like you, you go to watermelon, right? It's a bigger, bigger check size, bigger dollars. That, that's ultimately leverage more in your bank account. Every day, every day. Right? Yeah, that, that's that's amazing. Um, so, yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that's, that's incredible. So, that, I mean, that's a pretty – high leverage return of time, right? Like for, for an individual who wants to get into the business, like I'd, I'd rather, I mean, to be frank, that the business of investing sounds way better than investing itself. Like, you know, the craft because, man, you can make so much more money just through the fees. <laughs> and I, I, I guess they're correlated, right? Like you need to perform, you have to have a great investment to to earn that, that 20% carry. But it doesn't have to be, you only have to have one great stellar performer in your portfolio to really set you up for life almost like you know if we if we think about um a lot of venture venture capital funds talk about unicorns right so this is like billion dollar you know unicorns for some reason a billion yeah. dollars like number one, why is the billion like why isn't it a million or why is the 100 billion why, why isn't it more than that like why billion <laughs> and why do a lot of startups fail in the portfolio like why 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 is it mixed like that and wouldn't you want all your winners to be winners like it's a fascinating topic um I can't can't remember. A lady came up with the term unicorn. I, I I was reading about it recently. I think she might have been a journalist for TechCrunch or something. But um, it traditionally meant a private company with a valuation of over a billion dollars. And at the time, at the, in the market in the industry at that time, to be a private company worth a billion dollars was like a very rare thing, right? So hence hence the name unicorn. And I think it probably got like bastardized to be like a tech company over a billion dollars because now you read in like the industry um, news that like, you know, they'll call some listed company a unicorn. It's like, well, there's a lot of, a lot of listed companies are unicorns by that definition. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just about market cap over a billion. But yeah, but yeah, traditionally a private, private company worth a billion dollars in, in the tech space was, was what it meant. But in terms of why people go hunting for them, as they say, um, 
comes down to portfolio construction and um, and two dynamics in, in venture. One is the, the failure rate, right? So early, high stage, high risk companies, um, the likelihood that they will, will survive and provide good financial returns is pretty low. The failure rate, you know, you, you hear the nine out of 10 or seven out of 10 fail, but it, it sort of depends on the stage at which you're investing. But the failure rate is really high. And then the second concept that sort of interplays is, is I guess, what they call the, the power law distribution of returns, which, so starting with that, um, a huge portion of a fund's returns are, are usually driven by a really small number of investments. Um, for example, like usually the case is like one company, there's one company in the portfolio that's returns are greater than the sum of all the other returns from the rest of the companies. So in order to like set yourself up for that outcome, you basically be have, have to be making bets or investments on companies that could be huge, right? Hence chasing the unicorn. Um, and then you build out a portfolio of these bets, accepting that many will go to zero, but that the outliers will drive returns. So, so you're sort of accepting a, a loss ratio, a loss of capital, which, which like, is counterintuitive, right? Because like the Buffett aphorism is like, like you don't have permanent loss of capital. Like that's the one seen in traditional investing is like, don't, don't lose your money, right? Whereas this is, you're accepting that. Yeah. Rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, don't, don't forget rule number one, right? It's like, yeah, exactly. I think that's the quote. Yeah. It's the math is like, if you say, if you have uh, an investment that goes to zero, like to say you decrease it by 50%, right? So you, you'll say you invested a dollar. Yeah, the, it, the share price drops to fifty cents. Like to make up that that fifty percent loss, you actually need a hundred percent gain for the same quantum, right? So it's like, mm-hmm. like from financially speaking, you just try not to lose money, and so long as you make good investments that generate good returns, like over a long period of time, like you'll be set. But the venture model kind of is complete opposite to that idea. It's like, hey, now we're going to lose a bunch of money, <laughs> but hopefully, fingers crossed, we pick one or two winners that will um, be so large that it outweighs the rest of the losses. Um, and I guess that puts a lot of pressure and risk on the founders of that unicorn business, right? And uh, like, imagine being the CEO of a business that is aiming to be a unicorn. Like, that is a huge amount of pressure for them. I mean, running a business is hard enough, let alone to start up trying to do disruptive things. Like, how much... How much pressure do you put on, like, yeah, I think you've, you've got well, a unicorn and maybe a couple of unicorns in, in your portfolio. Like, how much are you busting these guys' balls? Like, hey, man, <laughs> you're, you're like my best horse in the race. You really <laughs> need to make this work. Like, come on. <laughs> no, we're, we're, we're not ball breakers. Um, <laughs> I mean, that probably talks to the, the other side of the, the, um, the spectrum in terms of strategy, right? There is that go big or go home, set yourself up with a portfolio of big bets, knowing that one or two will hit it, right? Yeah. And and accepting a, a high loss ratio of capital on, on, on logos. And by that, I mean, like, if you have, call it 20 companies and, you know, 15 of them go under, but two or three really hit it and two or three do okay, like, that's a, a huge loss ratio of, of companies. But at the other end, there's this, philosophy that's looked personally more appealing to me and it, it's it's more how we invest which is a, a more concentrated high conviction portfolio where you're aiming for a lower loss ratio right so a, lo- a lower amount of companies that that go to zero but you're not necessarily 
needing these monster outcomes, right, to get returns. So it's just a different style and a different philosophy. And it's basically saying, well, instead of having 50 companies and getting access to as much as possible for the option, like think about like, I guess, options in a sense, think, thinking that it's like you just need a couple that are going massive to make up for all those those losses. And this wasn't deliberate. It was just a style that developed over time that we felt most comfortable with was that we were less comfortable pulling the trigger on something that could be huge that like may, may go to zero as opposed to something that could come in at like with good traction, good progress. And you're like, oh, I, th- I have a high degree of confidence this company will have a good outcome. And we, we just led towards that area of saying, well, okay, let's have, you know, instead of 50, let's have 10. And let's only pull the trigger when we're really, really confident. And yes, it might not be the next Facebook or Canva, but if it exits at a couple of hundred million dollars and we're getting in on a 20 mil valve, then that's good. Um, and we don't need to swing for the fences every time. Of course, if we happen to have a unicorn, that's great. But, um, yeah, that's where we sit. So yeah, to answer your question, no, we're not, we're not busting anyone's chops. Um, pretty collaborative <laughs> and, um, I mean, they're like, they're, they're all, all eggs in, are in the bar, the one basket for the founders, right? So they, yeah, strictly per, person, personal incentive speaking, they have more in it than we do to make it succeed. So yeah, we're, we're certainly not trying to pile on the pressure. Well, I'm not, up until a certain stage, right? Because I, I, is it common for a lot of founders to take secondaries throughout their, throughout startup journey? Like, you know, when I say secondaries, that I might, Personally, sell shares in a, in a Series B or a C or sometimes Series A, which is really early, um, <laughs> probably too early uh, sometimes from the investors. But like they'll they'll ca- they're cashing out during the journey, right? So I guess what's your, what's your view on that personally, like founders? Because as an investor, you want your the CEOs of your portfolio companies to be all in, right? You want them, you know. Ski in the game. Um, I want them to have their house literally on the line. It's like if you don't, if you fuck this up, like. I want you to suffer <laughs> just as I will suffer because I've got millions of dollars banking on you that for this to, yeah. for this to work and that, that, that would suck if we all lose. But I want you to have sleepless nights just like I do. So, um, what's, what's your, at, at a certain stage though, like these founders may decide to, like, hey, well, I, I, I need to pay off my mortgage eventually. Like, how about I start to cash out my shares in, in rounds? So I've got secondary so I can clear the loan. Like, what's your view on that? Because it immediately it, it, it separates out lines of incentive, right? Because if you know that they're sleeping well at night personally, like does yeah. it take the, the pressure off like when it comes to this, this startup? Yeah, yeah, theoretically. It's it's been a really interesting few years for secondary. Like we saw the the, the timing of them just go earlier and earlier and earlier to the point where like we saw firsthand founders taking money off the table at like Series B when they're still, you know, if not at the bottom of the J curve, they're like, they're still fairly deep in the J curve. So the risk is still yeah. massive. That's and, crazy. And, um, it was just a, a factor of, yeah, it was just a factor of the environment where there was so much money funneling into these companies that the rounds were oversubscribed. And like, if you're raising 10 mil and you have 15 mil worth of interest, then it's like, cool. We'll, we'll just do secondaries for the other five. And that, that would often, a lot of that would go to the founders. So, like historically, the idea with secondaries that was was that once the company was de-risked enough that you had a, you know, we, we knew we were going to get a return. All the investors around the table, like, okay, this is fairly de-risked. It may not be cash flow break even or even break even or anything, but like, 
you know, you can forecast out and go, cool, revenue's doing this, fixed costs and stuff are sort of like this, like we're going to be there soon. And let's let the founders de-risk their personal lives a bit because everyone else was, you know, most likely in the money and going to get the return. And that, that just trended earlier. Um, and I think that's all com- completely gone now. Like I, I'd be yeah. surprised if I see a secondary sale at an early, early stage company in the coming two years. If, <laughs> well, you know, like the pendulum swung for sure, which I guess we'll touch on later. But the, yeah. um, the secondary thing is funny because the, the, the other, the flip side of that coin, right, is there, there can be an amount of personal stress where you like can't think clearly and, it all it almost misaligns incentives the other way. Like if you're not getting paid enough to like be like to not have to think about the roof over your head or the mortgage, like that can be really bad too. So they they need to be getting paid somewhere. And, and I guess as like you know, an early twenties founder with no spouse, no kids, no mortgage is very different mindset to a thirty five year old founder with several kids and a mortgage. So that that dynamic always matters and. Basically, you don't want the founder with kids and a mortgage to be like so stressed about home life that they can't think clearly. So there's this fine balance, right? Where it doesn't necessarily mean secondaries is the answer, but like they've got to be getting paid some amount, maybe not an amount that's commensurate to a high paying job in the market, but like they can't be stressing about home life in order to do a good job. That makes perfect sense. And also, I guess it helps them if, if they know that their home life is sorted, it, it allows them to be more risky, like make, take bigger bets in their business, right? Like they won't be so risk averse in their business decisions, knowing yeah. that, hey, this decision could take the company from a hundred mil to a billion versus, hey, um, but it, it, it also has a downside of, you know, going to 50 mil. Like it could, it could, it could be a binary option, right? So if they know that the personal, life is so that they can then take riskier bets um, from a strategy perspective um, as opposed to taking potentially more conservative bets, which would still be a good outcome overall potentially, but maybe not hitting that billion-dollar unicorn status, which is ultimately what you want them to do. Yeah, they, they know their house is safe and, and they can have the freedom to, to take more risk. Um, yeah. But th- there is the case, and we've seen this a couple of times, where like the founders are just so focused and so passionate that they've taken – good secondaries off the table and it doesn't change a thing. Like they are just mm. out to take over the world and it's been a, just a rational commercial decision based on the demand going into the round for them to take secondaries. But like the focus hasn't wavered. And like it's, we've seen it be a lot of money where you're like, okay, like you could retire on that money, but they're still swinging for the fences. So I guess it comes down to the personalities a lot too, which is probably the hardest thing in the, in the game really is, is picking the personalities of the founders. Yeah, that's, that's the interesting thing. So when, when it comes to early stage investing, are you picking the founders or the business model? Um, because I think the go back to the difference between like public market investing versus, uh, you know, early stage investing in, in public markets, you're largely betting on the business. It's like, Hey, do I think Google stock will or Google value will increase by 10x over 50 years? Yeah, probably. Um, I know Google, it's a good business model. It's got strong moats. It, you know, generates lots of cash. Do I know who the CEO of Google is? Like, probably not. Like, do I care who the CFO is? Do I care about the management team? No. Um, Google's not going to fail because of poor management. Like, they've, they've built a strong enough business that it will be fine. Mm. Despite, um, he wrote, I think, I think Warren Buffett said, um, some, something about, you know, he wants to buy businesses that are so simple and defensible that they can be run by a ham sandwich. Like, no disrespect to the CEOs, but like, <laughs> you can be a moron running a public company and it will still operate 
and that, that's that's a good quality company for him. Like, how is that different to early stage investing? When like, are you investing in the business or or, or the people? It's I wouldn't say it's hotly debated, but there's definitely funds and investors that say like product and business model and market is everything, and and those that say the founders are key. We we certainly sit on the side of the fence that the founders are everything, and I can't remember the quote, but it's like a you know, a, a good founder can turn around a bad business or, or, or fix a bad product or iter- iterate at least to, to get a, a product market fit. And a but but a, a bad founder can't do that to a, you know can destroy a good product and, and company. So for us, the founder is everything. Business model still important. Like it, it was less important earlier on, but we're starting to just based off learning experiences. We're like, oh, like you know, gross margins matter, and that's. You know, you know, as you and I have been talking about lately, like recurring revenues with high gross margins and negative working capital is way better than a transactional business with low gross margins. So, yeah, founders are everything for us. Like the high quality, smart people who can handle pressure and stress, like that's everything. And then it's it's certainly then more favorable if they're doing a B2B SaaS company with high gross margins and you know annual locked in recurring revenue contracts. Versus, say, like an e-com company where you're like, okay, all the revenue is transactional, got a decent chunk of variable, like paid acquisition to acquire those customers. They may buy a couple of times, but usually it's once. And your gross margins are what, like 20, 30, 40%. So, um, business model is still super important. Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's like you meet, I bet you there have been times when you've met like a great founder and like, oh, this guy ticks all the boxes or this guy, girl ticks all the boxes. They're really smart, capable, you know, have a bit of a track record, but they're just running a really shitty business. So they're like, their idea really sucks ass, man. It's like, that is like the shittiest of business models. Like, can you just like, don't do that business. Like you should do this one instead or like <laughs> pick, pick the business model or the opportunity vehicle that better aligns to something that can actually apply. Their, their the rest of their life to essentially, uh, which will give them a better success rate. Like, have you thought about that, or is it like, oh, they're, they're one and the same in terms of the founder and the business that they choose to, to pursue? Yeah, that's. We've had some instances where you like you want to shake a person because they're <laughs> they're very smart and capable, and they're like their business is just like I don't know, doggy daycare or whatever. Like you're just like ah, oh, like you could be. Either it's a just objectively terrible business model due to the margins or like the market size is not there or or it's just for whatever reason you're like, oh, you're, you're, you're wasting your efforts. But you have the, the skills to do something pretty massive, but you're applying it to the wrong problem or wrong opportunity. And usually they'll figure that out and have another go once that company fails. But yeah, I think like on the plus side, founders are usually like maniacally focused right so once they hone into the idea it's like the blinkers go on and no one can tell them otherwise which i think ultimately is a good trait because you're just gonna have people doubting you the whole way and people like oh that's that's silly if it if if it was a good idea it would exist already right like the, the um the economist and the a $50 note on the ground like it can't be real otherwise <laughs> someone would have taken it um, so you want the founders to be like super super focused but at the same time like that can cloud judgment when you're like ah oh, nobody needs another yeah another Airbnb for cats or whatever <laughs> yeah um, so I'm really fascinated by this like business of investing thing so like I, I I just can't help myself like when I see 
um, fun. Like you mentioned that guy before about, you know, the hedge fund manager who literally runs like what Biden, he's a principal and he has like two support staff managing $500 million of funds. Like that's, that's insane leverage. Like how, how much, like that's an, that's surely that's an outlier, right? Like that would be uh, an outlier for the average VC funds. Like how, how much money do you think the, the partners themselves make? Like, um, what's their take home salary? What's their, what's their net income every year? Um, and maybe, maybe it's this example. Let's, let's pick like, let's pick someone. I think that'd be interesting. Like maybe let's pick, um, you know, Nick Crocker, Nick Crocker at Blackbird Ventures. Like he's, he's probably our age. Um, you know, mid thirties, never met the guy, but seems like a really friendly guy. Uh, you know, he's in the media a lot. He's like kind of like the Keanu Reeves of Australian startups. He's like, you know, good looking. Everyone has, everyone's got really nice <laughs> things to say about him. Good reputation on and off camera, I think. Kind of, you know, nice haircut. Probably went to a GPS school. You know, all the traits that you would expect from kind of a VC, right? Like, you know, these guys. Um, anyway, like how much money do you reckon Nick owns at Blackbird? Yeah, good question. Um, I don't know Nick personally, so I don't know. But And, and the salaries vary wildly based on the fund size, right? That what we were talking about earlier. So, like if you're a, like a 20 mil fund, like if you if you do the the math on 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 that, like a twenty mil fund with a two percent management fee has four hundred k a year to play with. That's and you've got to pay accounting and compliance and your AFSL and all this stuff under that, right? So that's that's not a lot of money to build out a team. Whereas, I mean, Blackbird, I think they've got a couple of billion in like capital commitments. Like their their portfolio value is probably like. Yeah, so like, let me just bring up Blackbird's website. Um, like I said, I brought up this is their investor portfolio where they they break down committed capital by year um, and their returns, right? So, uh, so it's just someone starting. So, twenty thirteen year, I assume that that's a pretty great IRR. Like, I assume that's the Canva portfolio potentially. Like, that's pretty early twenty thirteen. Yeah, great returns. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 incredible. So, okay, so $29 million of committed capital. So what that means is they've raised $29 million from investors. Um yeah. and they've called 95% of it. So that means that they 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 all got so of their investor portfolio they said, "Hey, $29 million is on the hook." Um but they've they've actually called in 95% of that $29 million as as cash to invest, right? Is that is that what that means? Yeah. They call percent. Yeah, yeah. So I guess they're either holding a little bit for like follow-ons yeah um which i guess what's that 10 years ago so or um like i don't know an investor defaulted on a capital call maybe but like yeah i can't i can't think of any other reason like usually your uncalled capital is is you either haven't deployed it um and they're well past their investment period so it would be reserved follow-ons basically gotcha Okay, cool. So, so they've raised, they've called all of it. And so they've turned that $29 million into what are we looking at here? This is investor capital, investment capital. So, so total value to paid in capital is that TVPI. So basically, um, 33 times, 33 and a half times that 29 mil, right? So that's, what's that? That's massive. That's 970 mil. Okay, so they're close to a billion dollars. They've turned 30 mil into a billion dollars, which is, that's crazy. Over a 10 year, what's that? 10 years, right? So that's, no, no, yeah. that's, that's insane. So, Massive. so if Nick, so Nick was a partner in that portfolio, in that vintage, he would get, I mean, he get two, well, it's not all, Blackbird, the business would get 2% of the 29 mil every year. Is that right? Or the total yep. 29 yep. mil? No. Yeah. So, so let's do that. So 
two percent of twenty nine. So that's that's like almost uh, wait, what did I say? Twenty nine mil. Um, so that's almost six hundred k, so five hundred eighty k a year. Assuming I have management fees, two percent, right? Which probably was. Um, so that's five hundred eighty k a year to run the business. I don't know how many staff there were at the start. Probably like well, two. Of, I don't. Like, I don't know how many founders. Two of yeah, them probably like the three. Firm. Yeah, like thirty mil. Not much. Like to manage them in yeah. capital. So let's just say three. So probably on two hundred k each. Like you know, maybe call a hundred k each of salary. Right, keep the lights on. Like just yep. know that yep. estimate. And that, but like the carry is, well, what the hell is, what's the math on that? 970 million. Yeah, so that's insane. So 20% of that 970. Yeah, so 970 take, just call it 30 mil for rough numbers. That's 940 mil times 20%. That's 188 million carry. <laughs> Holy <laughs> like shit. Ignoring so, a preferred return. So they might have had a preferred return on that and there could be a catch up, but, but we won't go into that. So, yeah, that's um, that's massive. Like, so what's that? Split, so, so hundred eighty. So you say hundred eighty million dollars. One eighty was a carry. Yeah. Um, yeah. Assuming twenty percent of the time. Assuming twenty percent, which is probably twenty. So, so that that's six divided by three partners is a guess. That's sixty million dollars in yeah, carry. That's insane. Yeah. For ten years, <laughs> I mean, like, and how active do you reckon they are? For those in in those portfolio companies over that ten year period, like obviously they're the maybe they've got board seats and stuff, but they're not actually running the business. So that's a pretty fucking fantastic uh, wealth creation strategy for for partners, right? For the GPs, yeah, you, and that's just one fund, like like, and you stack them, right? That's one year. If you can hit an outlier like Canva, um, that's. Um it shows you how monstrous the returns can be, both to the, the LPs, right? Like think of that, like those people chucking in yeah, 29 mil to get <laughs> to get um none 970 back like that's oh yeah that's 970 monstrous. less than 20 percent uh, so 970 oh yeah true 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 yeah, yeah so yeah. but but even then like, that's still like a shit ton of money <laughs> that, that's crazy yeah. wow that's amazing yeah wow, so, so I, I mean how active were they i mean like they're, they're probably still on the board of canva um over 10 years like you're strategically active i suppose at a board level you know potentially going down into helping with hiring and stuff it it depends i mean they're they're building an enduring franchise as a business right they got what five five funds now i don't know a lot of funds big team um big sort of uh platform to help their companies with so i think like they're probably pretty active in their companies. Uh, we we haven't co-invested with them at all, actually. But um, uh, yeah, I'd imagine they're 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 pretty active. But yeah, it's uh, certainly good returns. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's it's hard to like estimate this the the salaries, right? Because the as soon as you get into carry territory, like what's well, it's not a salary anyway, but it's it's income. Yeah. Um, it just it can blow it out of the water, right? Like, it, you know, I'd say a partner at a big name fund like that could be on like three four five hundred k salary but like yep. that's not where the money is the money is when you hit a home run and get like i, I know several or know of several founding partners at, at big name aussie firms who have just banked tens of millions um in carry from usually one or two big exits in their portfolio so that's when those unicorn outlier returns really matter yeah that's so good so 
I mean, a lot, of the, a lot of these partners would be wealthier than the startup founders themselves, potentially, right? Because I think after dilution, <laughs> a lot of the founders are like left with one, two percent left on the cap table. <laughs> and despite them exiting it by billions of dollars, their dilution means that they don't, that might be 20 or 30 million dollars to them, not, not a lot more. <laughs> yeah. I, there's, um, yeah, that, that asymmetry between the investor and the founder being that the investor has lots of shots. Like yeah. lots of bets, like diversified basically, but per their business model. Whereas the founders like all in on one thing. So if if the if the partner in a VC fund can have several home runs, they st- yeah they stand to make a ton and and more than more than the founders usually. But but the founders of the companies that are home runs are just far and away making more than anyone, right? Like yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the Canva founders. You know, what are they worth? 10 billion as a couple or something like it's if yeah i'd say that the investor probably makes on average more than founders um, except for the founders that win yes yes that that so like if if the goal was to make money which i think <laughs> i'm not ashamed to say the goal is to make more money um the goal would be like <laughs> yeah. well screw this startup and like screw being a founder of a startup like taking all that risk having to do all the work like i just become an investor um and i'll just like Raise some money from other people and and deploy that and hopefully I'm, I'm a good judge of character and of business model. Like how easy it for would it be for someone to start a fund? I mean, you and Dan started what full circle. I mean, how old were you? Like late twenties? Like when 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 did full circle start? Yeah, it was 2015 or 2016. Yeah, I was late twenties, probably too young to be honest. Um, but I, I like to take the leap. Yeah. So, I mean, and I think like most fund managers, most successful fund managers started really early. So, I think in, if you're thinking about learning and compounding, the sooner you start something, the better, even if you're shared at the beginning because everyone is shared at something. Everyone is shared everything at the beginning. So, but you guys have- Yeah, exactly. Be- that, that was exactly my thinking. It's like, I can take the risk and I'll learn. And as long as I survive, then I'll, I'll, I'll do okay. Yeah, and what full circle is doing okay by all accounts. Like from, I think that's that's doing pretty well. Yeah, yeah we're we're um, I mean, times will tell over the next couple of years. Like our returns were top quintile or top, definitely top quartile, but it's paper, right? I've only had one exit, so um, it it the challenging times will be in the next twenty four months when um, capital availability sort of reduces and valuations unfairly. Certain will come down for most companies, or not most, but a good chunk of companies. And um, I guess the survival of a lot of companies will be put into question. So it's, it's sort of a, a winter coming up in in our view. So that'll really test test our returns um, for sure. But yeah, to date we've done pretty good. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's how hard is it to start a fund? Um, it was. I guess, I guess. I guess my question is: is like, can anyone become a VC? <laughs> I guess what I'm really asking. Like, <laughs> if anyone listens to this, they're like, "Yeah, man, like, I've, I've got this business and it's okay." But I'm like, I'm not making tens or potentially make hundreds of millions of dollars. Like, I can make maybe a few hundred thousand dollars here and there, and may- maybe maybe make two or three million dollars in an exit in ten years' time. Like, it's like, well, if the goal is to make more money, like, should I just quit this thing and start a fund? That seems like a, a, a faster. More, more successful path to wealth creation. Like, how easy is it to start a VC? How easy is it to start a VC fund, and can anyone do it? Yeah, it was certainly a more common um, occurrence in the last three years. Like, you'd see a lot of um, for, for for various reasons, right? Like, cost of capital was cheap, and 
it, you you are not getting return on on traditional low risk low risk assets. So people were like plowing money into private markets, and you know tech companies were growing like rocket ships. So it was a pretty sexy area to be in. We saw a lot of people enter VC at either senior levels or start their own fund who had no finance background, um, and they're like might be product people from uh, a tech company, and they're like, yeah, they've got pretty good chops when it comes to like understanding a business model of a startup and the the various um, like types of tech and stuff, but probably re- realistically had no business running a funds management business. Um, like firsthand, I sat down with a couple of people separately who were like starting funds and just because they were like, oh, you started one six years ago, like can I pick your brain? And it sort of became evident halfway through the call, halfway through the chat, like deer in the headlights, they're like, you start talking about the mechanics of compliance and capital calls and the reporting and all this stuff. And they're just like, they're like no idea. And you're like, Oh yeah, it's, you know, it is a funds management business. It's you are a fiduciary of other people's money and it's a very serious endeavor and commitment. And I mean, I, I think back to a lot of funds will use this marketing tagline that they're like, Oh, the, the portfolio company is the customer or the founder is the customer. It's like, no, your, your investor, your LP is your customer. Like, yeah, exactly. A, a, a legal and fiduciary <laughs> obligation to, to, to manage their money. Like the startup is not the customer. It's, it's a nice philosophy that we're founder friendly and it's just purely to get deal flow in the door. Right. But like, for sure. It's, it's a, yeah. it's a big, like, it's a big mistake and flaw to think that you are entering a business where the portfolio company is the customer when, you know, you are obliged under the Corpse Act to act in the best interests of your investors. Um, it, it's so, it's so true. I mean, in, in many ways, it's like a marketplace, right? You're just a middleman in between cutting checks in, in great companies and, and trying to find capital because you don't have may not have that capital yourself because otherwise you would just invest your own personal money, right, in, in these companies. Yeah, if, and that's if you, what we If you didn't have other people's yeah. money. Exactly. Like I, I thought like way back to the start of the combo when it's like the business of funds management, that's the, the sort of endeavor of investing. Like ultimately we just like to invest our own money. Um, yeah. But like we don't have enough to write the size you don't of have checks. Spare that, $30 million of liquid cash yeah. floating around, Rowan. But. <laughs> exactly. So um, we, we have a particular style or philosophy that we want to execute on and um, we need – to, to do that, we need to be augmented by other people's capital, but we don't necessarily want to rate, uh, go and raise 10 funds and build a big funds management business, right? To your last point, yeah, there, there are a lot of people starting funds in the last few years that, that they probably won't get off the ground or the fund won't do that well. And I think it, they'll feel the pain and the pressure when they have to start dealing with like proper corporate finance and funds management like issues. Um, I mean, even distressed assets, right? Like, you know, it could pull yeah. down. It's like, it's been, you know, next 24 months, like how do you have those hard conversations with investors that we've, we've written off nine tenths of a portfolio and we've got one left and hopefully that makes it, <laughs> hopefully there's enough right yeah. way for it to survive and, and return something. Like, let, let's switch gears a bit. So, I mean, we, we came off, I guess, a massive tech bubble over the last couple of years where, you know, saw some cra- pretty crazy logical valuations in the, in the public markets, um, let alone private markets, like, you know, 30, 40, 50 times rev valuations, crazy shit like that. I mean, we, we saw like 100 and 200 times forward revenue. Like it was that's- absolutely <laughs> bonkers. And is there even revenue? Is it like, is it like fake revenue? Like when you say revenue, is it like, 
is this your take? Is it like real revenue or is it like, oh, this is our marketplace GMV and like, uh, yeah. It was, it, it was usually real revenue for SaaS companies, but it was forward revenue, right? So you've got like, you know, you've got last 12 months, you've got ARR, which is like current month times 12, and then you've got forward yeah. revenue or even forward ARR, which is like, okay, like what's the revenue? Like forward revenue is like, what's the revenue 12 months from now? But forward ARR is like in 12 months from now, What's that monthly revenue times twelve? <laughs> right? How do you so, even know what your monthly? Well, how do you know the revenue of twelve months from now? Like uh, it's all made up, right? It's yes. like forecast. That's crazy. Yeah, well, it's it's easier with SaaS companies because if you've got a relative, like if you've got a relatively predictable growth rate, because you know what your your channels of customer acquisition are, um, and you've got a stable gross margin, um, and you've got like you know your churn rate or your your net dollar retention is just sort of fairly stable you can forecast out a, a SaaS company pretty easy so hence why people are, are yeah. usually more comfortable to to use a ford or next 12 months revenue but um right it's not always the case like volatility happens but yeah so we, we were certainly seeing like 100 times ford arr and just like how do you <laughs> couldn't 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 make sense of it um and we just largely sat on our hands um through that period because it just like you're just accepting lower returns and and quite dramatically so. Um, and we just like entry price to us matters a lot. Like what you pay yeah. um, is a big determinant of returns. And um, yeah, we just couldn't make sense of a lot of this and just sat on our hands. That's nuts. That's wow. Um, so I guess, yeah, that seems to have changed now, I guess in the last 12 months perhaps with interest rates kind of going up inflation all that sort of stuff like can you maybe just unpack what that means for what you're seeing in startup valuations now relative to last year or maybe two years ago and what do you think that will look like for the next kind of 24 months yeah it's it's interesting times so i guess what we saw public tech companies get smashed in 2022 and there's always this big lag in private markets right because of two things so companies usually raise every 12 to 18 months and then um, because the deals themselves can take a few months start to finish and the announcements usually lag that again. So you've got this massive lag. So companies came out of COVID like surprisingly really well capitalized because capital was cheap. So they raised a lot of money on good valuations to see them through what was potentially a rocky time. And so these companies might not need to raise this year or, or might not raise until next year. So this this lag in public to private markets is, is really pronounced and, and we we personally are, are just seeing it firsthand starting to happen now where um, companies are sort of going out to market to talk to investors and um, there's talk of down rounds or or the companies are still have a lot of runway so they're just saying well I'm not gonna I'm not gonna raise like until I really need to in the hope that the market sort of picks back up again so I don't have to take it down now. But, but yeah, so valuation. So I guess like interest rates are rising, that pushes up the discount rate, which reduces asset values, right? Just based on CAPM or basic sort of corporate finance principles. Um, and that's felt the most in businesses whose cash flows are very far out in the future, right? Because that discount yeah. rate's applied all the way back. So, yeah. so, I guess as returns on safer investments increase, there's less desire to seek like returns at the riskier end of the spectrum. So capital is basically um, sort of becoming more scarce. At the moment, people aren't doing a whole lot of deals. Like there's deals getting done, but the ones where 
a part of or talking to, like they're moving slowly. People don't want to catch a falling knife. They still think valuations are falling and no one wants to like buy here when it's going to end here. So people are just waiting just to see what happens. I think probably waiting for interest rate rises to plateau and just get a sense of certainty. Um, but I guess, frankly, it's for as investors, it's a bit of a relief. Like, as I said earlier, like we've barely touched anything in the last few years because we couldn't make sense of the valuations and couldn't see how investors were going to get returns with such high entry prices. So we're seeing a lot more attractive opportunities at prices that are, are decent now. Awesome. I mean, it sounds like you didn't do much work then in the in the uh, the bull market. Just, <laughs> everything was too expensive. I'll just keep collecting my management fee and just chill for a bit and just to see what happens. Sat, sat on our hands. No, there, there was a lot of portfolio <laughs> work to be done. Um, like there, it, it's funny when there's. I remember, I remember the six months like March 2020 to you know like September or whatever in 2020. It was just. I mean, we did those podcasts for um, for SBO on like preparing for lean times and preparing for a recession and like that was sort of remember like that the key principles were there were like that's the same stuff we're having at the conversations at the company board level like basically saying hey we we don't know what the next six to 12 to 18 months looks like you've got to prepare for the worst and that means extend your runway um usually companies will do like an inside round on a convertible note to um to existing investors to, to sort of extend runway and that that stuff was happening but like you're sort of war gaming out these scenarios for the future going well what happens if our revenue like if our customers go bankrupt and our revenue carbs or like what happens if you know all, all number of things happen we can't get capital when we need to raise it um yeah so that's um you, you do less outward investing activity over the last few, well, we did, but like certainly a lot more uh, work inside the portfolio. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, it, it's so funny when we're kind of, you know, the if you read all the articles and advice from Sequoia and A16Z and all these kind of like, you know, high-performing funds and ones with all the credibility, they're writing like blog posts and, you know, medium articles to, to share with their portfolio company founders about, you know, how to manage difficult, challenging economic time uh, periods and, it's all about like, hey, you know, cash is king, which is obvious. Um, but things like, you know, extend runway, which is again obvious. The third one's like, how do you, how do you extend, practically extend runway? It's like, well, cut low ROI marketing activities. Like, it's like, well, again, very obvious. And like, why are you spending money on low market, low ROI marketing activities anyway? Like, that's stupid. Why are we just focus on all the, the high ROI ones? Like, so it's funny, all, all the, all the advice from everyone's that were very common sense and basic, which I guess fundamentally business is simple, right? It's like, Generate revenue, um, <laughs> service to customers, make them really happy, and hopefully there's some left uh, that you can pay out to investors or always compound into into value in the long term. So uh, yeah, yeah. Have you do, have you watched The Wire? No, I haven't. No, well, one of the drug dealers in that show always says like, you know, it's simple. You buy for a dollar and sell for two. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, it's just fundamentally that is that is business. That is business. Uh, that's classic. It's been awesome. That's all. I think we'll cut it there. It's good to chat, Ron, uh, as, as always. Yeah, like uh, yeah. Cool. Take it easy. Bye. Talk to you soon. Well, there you have it. Episode one is in the bag. Uh, next time, we'll be 
talking about a relatively new and emerging trend in Australia called search funds. And we'll be joined by the godfather of search funds in Australia, Pete Seligman, one of the rare folks in this field who has personally acquired, operated and sold over seven SMBs himself. Uh, so to make sure you don't miss it, subscribe to Stark Naked Numbers on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your podcast app of choice. To learn more about the secrets of uncovering your financials, unlocking your cash and unleashing your profits, visit StarkNakedNumbers.com and follow us on uh, whatever like social media platforms uh, you, you follow us on. Uh, LinkedIn is probably the biggest one. I'm Jason Andrew and this has been the Stark Naked Numbers podcast.